Well, greetings and welcome to The Divine Line. We're back here in Phoenix, Arizona in uh, our regular studio, ready to go. Wasn't the longest trip, but it, uh, when you when you push it, way many hours past what you're comfortable uh, driving uh, to get home. Uh, it uh, it seems like it was a long time. <laughs> uh, less than three weeks, but the big one's coming. The big one's coming in February, March. We're probably talking a solid five weeks, maybe a little longer uh, to get everything in. It's gonna be a big one, so please be praying toward that. Uh, the five debates. And uh, uh, possibility of a nationwide program right at the beginning, uh, again, on the subject of Roman Catholicism. Lots of stuff going on there. Um, someone sent me this morning. First thing I got this morning was a super spin article. And I, that's, the only, that's the only way to describe it. It was horribly uh, biased and unfair and... Um, it, just really from the left-hand side, trying to defend uh, Francis against those a terrible Burke and uh, the other guy down in Texas, and uh, they're just terrible, horrible people. And um, yeah, uh, so much going on there that uh, looks like uh, next month in January, I'll probably be doing a number of sermons at Apologia Church January. Is very very busy time for Jeff Durbin. Um, of course, these days every day is busy for Jeff Durbin, especially for his wife Candy. Uh, as the uh, the twin girls are home, by the way, I should let you know uh, that that adoption uh, has gone through, and uh, Piper and Nora are home. And uh, I think uh, Jeff said uh, one was six and a half pounds, that was five and a half pounds. That's big. For uh, 10-week preemie babies, uh, they were really, really early and had issues, had problems. Um, but because uh, my son was 413, we brought him home. So he was only seven weeks early. Anyway, uh, they're home. Uh, but that means, wow, uh, January is so busy for him because of end abortion. Now we have 18 states where legislation is going to be um, being testified to, um, to to give equal protection. Uh, we know, obviously, that you're up against not only the uh, uh, culture of death, but you're up against the pro-life uh, industry as well. Uh, but it's a testimony to the magistrates. Uh, you have to keep pushing. You have to keep moving forward. So last year, I preached three out of four Sundays in January, and uh, I don't know how many I'll be preaching this year, but we will be uh, looking at Roman Catholicism and seeking to make sure that our people are appropriately aware of what the issues are. It just seems like today, once again, we're going through one of these uh, uh, little waves that you get. Uh, you know, there's a constant movement out of Roman Catholicism. Uh, all around the world. Um, but there are waves, and you, you hear much more about people going into it than people coming out of it. I've said this many times, you just listen to the converts speaking, and when someone leaves Roman Catholicism, they're talking about coming to the gospel and coming to Christ. Uh, coming to understand what the gospel is for the very first time. What, 
what it means to have peace with God, what what righteousness is, uh, all these types of things. Uh, when people go into Roman Catholicism, what you hear about is the church, 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 the church which uh, is tough these days um, with uh, Francis, uh, but they're still they're still doing it. They're still doing that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, a lot coming up in, in just the next literally number of weeks. I don't know how I'm going to get prepared for all of it, but um, because there's just so much stuff going on. Uh, my thanks again to everyone that made the last trip uh, possible. Um, you know, I was really surprised uh, this morning. I took the last stuff out of the freezer in our non-working refrigerator. <laughs> I'll be taking it in for service uh, tomorrow. And I was really, really surprised. I I put a bag of ice in that freezer uh, more than two days ago, and it was hardly froze, hardly melted at all. So what you can do if you learn from me, if your refrigerator dies, I hope you have a little fridge out in the other part because this this unit has a little outdoor kitchen thing. It has one of those, you know office size little cooler type thing. It's not, not a really full refrigerator. It doesn't have a freezer in it. And uh, so I put everything in there that was, you know, just going to die. That I was going to have to throw out or whatever. But I discovered that if you put enough ice, not enough, I mean, I didn't have enough, but if you put ice in the freezer, you can put stuff in there and it will, it won't freeze it, but it'll keep it about the temperature that a refrigerator would normally keep it at. So, you know, your freezer isn't the largest portion of stuff, but between the two, I got home, didn't get food poisoning yet. Anyways, <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, but that's, that's how it goes. Uh, you got to find ways to adapt. So hopefully have it all working fine on the way out come February, uh, because that's going to be a huge trip and I do not have time to be troubleshooting stuff. Uh, I'm going to be concentrating on other things and need to be concentrating on other things during that period of time. So pray toward that end. So much happening uh, in the world. Um, I just, I saw a video and I thought, you know, um, well, first of all, uh, congratulations to Dusty Devers. Uh, that's amazing that someone that uh, open about their position now of course pretty conservative area but still given the murderous intention of the media these days um that's that someone that open about their stance on life and things like that could be elected amazing thing it's good it's uh ex it's exciting the uh republic sentinel is um reporting uh, that Michael Cassidy, a Christian, a Christian and former military officer, tore down and beheaded the Satan altar in the Iowa Capitol. I don't know if you saw that. Did you see the the pictures of it? Yeah, there was someone set up a idol, a satanic idol, in the Iowa Capitol next to the uh, manger scenes, all based on freedom of religion, of course. Which, by the way, I just hope. No, I, I was going to say, I hope everyone would know. Uh, no, vast majority wouldn't because vast majority are public schooled. Um, 
There is not a single one of the Founding Fathers, including the non-Christians, that would have approved of a Satan altar in any capital anywhere. Okay, just, just so you know. They they weren't as stupid as we are today. <laughs> okay. They, they 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 they're like, no, we want God's blessing, not God's curse. So yeah, we're not doing that. Uh, but it was there, and a guy named Michael Cassidy, a Christian former military officer, tore it down, beheaded it, and chucked the head in a trash can, and then turned himself into police at the Capitol. And uh, the Satanists will be pressing charges, and it's like a fourth degree some little thing type thing, but uh, there are pictures now all through uh, Twitter of the decapitated idol. And um, yeah, Rich is, Rich is what? Algo? I'm not going to mention that uh, because the idol now, having been decapitated, looks like the president. So... <laughs> so. And it's about, about as functional, um, about, as, about as quick. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, yes. And and I did have some people on the trip say it would be nice to, to Rich. So um, there you go. Oh, yeah, as long as Algo said it, then then it's, it's perfectly fine. Um, okay, so one of the things that I ran into um, was a video of... Rutgers professor Brittany Cooper. Now I with what is with what happened last week, and I didn't comment on this, but what happened last week, or was it the week before? Uh well, all the fallout was last week. With the presidents of MIT, Harvard, and Penn, wasn't it? Um not able to offer a full-throated condemnation of the calling for genocide of the Jewish people. Was was 1938 really all that long ago? I mean, think about it. That is, we're, we're coming up on 100 years, aren't we? And it, it just doesn't seem people can remember um, very, very long ago. So, you know, maybe, maybe that's it. But um, there was this thing called World War II and these people called Nazis and places called Auschwitz and Birkenau and Dachau and Ravensbrück, Buchenwald, all these places where unthinkable things took place. But, hey, um, it's okay. So, you know, one of the threes resigned and then Harvard has demonstrated that why would anyone want to go to Harvard? And in fact, why would anybody want to go to any of these institutions any longer? I mean, I'm being absolutely serious. Because isn't it real obvious that education isn't taking place there anymore? Why are people donating millions and literally billions of dollars to these institutions? We're all, you know, some of them don't even play football. <laughs> or if they, they do, they don't do it well. Um, that's about all they're worth these, these days. You, you don't, you don't have scholarship taking place any longer. Isn't, isn't that clear? Isn't, isn't that obvious? I mean, why would you go to Harvard? If I, I anyway, it, we need to come to understand 
what has happened to what used to be called the academy, uh, what it means to become woke. And we can sit there and go, woke means you're broke. Well, it does. It really means that it, it, it's all over. And so this uh, Brittany Cooper, I, you know, I don't know how these people become professors. Um, but let's just listen to a, just a little bit of some recent comments that she made and realize that she will be defended um, in making such comments at almost any institution at all, let alone Rutgers. So here's, uh, here's some of the things Brittany Cooper had to say. I think that white people are committed to being villains in the aggregate, right? The real sort of issue here, and I, you know, I've heard people sort of say it, is one, I think that white people viscerally fear. It's not that white people don't know, right, what they have done. They know. They fear that there is no other way to be human, but the way in which they are human, which is to, so, you know, like you talk to white people and whenever you, you really want to have a reckoning about it, they say stuff like, you know, it's just human nature. If y'all had all of this power, you would have done the same thing, right? And it's like, no, that's what white humans did. White human beings thought there's a world here and we own it prior to them. Black and brown people have been sailing across oceans, interacting with each other for centuries without total subjugation, domination, and colonialism. We have seen uh, what a what a show this iteration of treatment of, of other human beings means, and that my hope is that we would do it differently you know, in the moments when we have some power. We will not do it perfectly, but I do think that all of us can sort of agree that a politics that says like there are superior and inferior human beings just isn't the way to go. And that's the thing that white people don't trust us to do because they are so corrupt. You know, their thinking is so morally and spiritually bankrupt about power that they can't let, you know, they fear viscerally, existentially letting go of power because they cannot imagine that there is another way to be. It is either that you dominate or you are dominated. Now, I just I'll just stop there because it just it goes on and on and on. But. um. You know, I I think back on my own childhood, and I I think about the the first house I really remember was a farmhouse, um, in outside of Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. And my my dad had been passing by it, and it was all broken down. The windows are broken, and um, he had found out who owned it and he went to him and said, I'll fix this up if you let me and my family live in it. And the guy's like, there's bats, there's a huge number of bats up in the attic and there were, um, and it says, I, I just don't, I don't think you could. Well, my dad said, I think I can. And so my dad fixed the place up and, you know, I can, I can remember so much about that home. Um, I remember watching uh, Walter Cronkite talking about the Vietnam War. Uh, some of my very first memories, the Ho Chi Minh Trail and all that kind of stuff. We were poor as church mice. I mean, we had nothing. Uh, we were in the bottom, the bottom bracket 
as far as income and everything else. And so when I hear these people talking about my privilege, the power and everything else that I've had, and I just want to go, what are you smoking in that school of yours? I mean, seriously, uh, I, I, I just can't even conceive of it to, to just talk about just white folks as a whole. We know there's all sorts of different kinds of white folks, just like I know there's all different kinds of black folks and brown folks and yellow folks and every other kind of folks. Um, to, to be this kind of shallow, racist type of, of person and to get paid to do it, to get your position because that's how you are, uh, is absolutely positively amazing. It is so sad to see this kind of stuff um, happen. You know, we we thought this was this stuff was going away, but no, no, you have to use it to divide people. And there's there's Brittany Cooper. Just you can just talk about white folks, white people, because uh, they're just so morally bankrupt, and, and and it's so spiritually bankrupt, and it's like I I. I I think back on 2016 when I first started this, saw this stuff coming, and it has just it's become a steamroller since then. This is CRT on steroids. This is this is what it does. It destroys. It it divides. It 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 is destructive of any kind of society that wants to survive. And I. I don't know that this society wants to survive. That's the point. That's that's the problem. Um, want to spend a few minutes, and we're, we're going to have again uh, get back to another topic uh, toward the end. Wow, I already spent eight. How did I get through eighteen minutes? That's astonishing. Um, I have not forgotten, and we're just not making fast progress. But I apologize. I I, I keep it on my computer, so. We, we will be able to get to it. Um, but I do want to continue responding to Muhammad Hijab. Now, what's interesting, since last time I did this, I sent an email to, to Muhammad Hijab, uh, the speaker that you're we've been playing, asking when he was going to be coming to the United States and seeing if, if in there'd be any way to try to make my travel schedule and his travel schedule hook up. You know, that's much more difficult for me these days because I'm not flying, but um, I'm still able to get around a little bit. I never heard back from him. And then only a few weeks ago during the height of the Hamas-Israel stuff, uh, which seems to be calming down a little bit at the moment, uh, here I see a video of him leading protesters in the streets of London and they're they're calling for Jewish blood, and I'm like, well, that would explain why I didn't hear back, I guess. Uh, but my, what a difference uh, only a few years uh, can make because this is 2018, so you know, five years ago, um, five years and one month actually. Now looking at it, a um, little bit surprising, a little bit surprising, but. The arguments are still the same, so let's uh, let's do about 20 minutes here, and then we'll do 20 minutes on another topic to sort of uh, wrap things up uh, uh, on uh, on this one. That guys, when you look at the Old Testament, do we see this? Because when we look at the Old Testament, we find the Shema. 
Chapter 6 verse 4 Shema Israel Adonai Elohim Adonai Echad Hero Israel My Lord, our Lord is one Lord Here When you look at the first commandment Chapter 20 verse 3 of Exodus You find there's no God beside me I'm your Lord and there's no God beside me You find in Isaiah Chapter 43 verse 11 Once again the discussion of I'm your God and besides me there is no Savior now it's interesting, and and I would I would point this out uh, to Muhammad if we were to have a conversation on these things. Um, I I love when people go to Isaiah forty three because I I'm I'm sitting there going, go ahead, go to verse ten, go to verse ten, because Isaiah forty three ten obviously for all of you who deal with uh, Mormonism, one of the key texts that we use. The last part of the verse, before me there was no God formed, there should be none after me. Um, Christians defend the doctrine of monotheism. And we do so from, well, most of us anyways, who want to make a biblical case, um, make our arguments from Scripture. And we make our arguments against not only the polytheistic systems, but against, uh, for example... Uh, those within our own community that will um, muddy the waters for the sake of uh, tradition or personal advancement or whatever else it might be. I'll let you figure out who that might be. Uh, we defend monotheism, and there are numerous texts with which you could do that, but Isaiah 40 through 10 is an excellent one. Before me, there is no God form. There should be none after me. But what's fascinating, of course, is the beginning of that verse, you are my witnesses, says Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, she may know and understand and believe that I am he. Um, anahu, which in the Greek, sept, Anahu in the Hebrew, which comes across as egoimi in the Greek Septuagint, a text that Jesus quotes of himself and applies to himself on the night of his betrayal in John 13, 19. And so it's interesting when you know someone like Muhammad Ijab will, will quote that text, not realizing that if he were looking at the entirety of the Christian scriptures, that text, including verse 11, would be referring to the deity of Christ. But he doesn't realize that, and neither did his prophet. That's the problem. The writer, to, the writer of the Quran never read Isaiah, did not know it was contained in Isaiah, and in fact thought that all sorts of other things that are not in the canon of Scripture were in the canon of Scripture and included those things in the Quran. So there's a major problem. But Muhammad Ijab is talking about Nicene Trinitarianism, and he's trying to contrast that with what's found in the Old Testament. But if you don't understand the relationship between Old and New Testament, you're going to stumble into basic errors um, and miss what the actual testimony of the scriptures are. Now someone might argue, but the word Elohim, and this is the weakness of the argument, it's a weak linguistic argument, the word Elohim is a majestic plural, they would argue. Look, there are 9,000 pronouns in the Bible which relate to God's name. Let's take, for example, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Bereshit, Bereshit, 
Bara, Elohim. The word Bara means he created. Whenever you find a pronoun in the Old Testament referring to Elohim, you will always find it in third person male singular. One more time. Third person male singular. You don't find a plural version of that. You don't find a pronoun which is pluralized. You know, it's funny when we deal with uh, Mormonism, we always point out to them, since they are true polytheists, um, that you know they will talk about how Elohim has a plural ending, and yet it has been a regular statement of ours for decades. But when it's when it's used of the one true God, now when it's used of false gods, then it's going to be used to the plural a plural verb. Um, and with plural pronouns. But when it's in reference to Yahweh, uh, then it is in the singular, and singular pronouns will be used. There isn't a question about that, and Trinitarians don't believe in multiple gods, and therefore you wouldn't expect to use a plural pronoun in that place. So that doesn't... It's not, not, a, not, a, real good, not a real good argument there. So now the question would be is this, a Jew who is acquainted with the Torah, with the Old Testament, why would one ask him to realign his belief, his theological doctrines, into believing in a triune God, when in fact he's been instructed quite explicitly in fact in the Old Testament not to break the commandments? Well, of course, uh, we're not asking them to break the commandments. They're need to understand that, for example, in the prophecy, and I spoke on this last Sunday in um, Kansas, uh, the prophecy in Isaiah 9-6 of the coming coming Messiah, which I've actually heard some Jehovah's Witnesses, Jehovah's Witnesses, I've actually, <laughs> right, let's get them all confused here. Uh, I've actually heard some uh, Muslims uh, apply Isaiah 9-6 to Muhammad. They just skipped the El Gabor, Mighty God part, when they did so. We covered that, oh, wow, 2008, I bet, around 2008, 2009, that, that time frame, I, I remember that. Um, but um, in Isaiah 9, when this coming one, the Prince of Peace, is described as El Gabor, Mighty God, same phrase that's used of Yahweh in Isaiah 10, 21, only a matter of sentences later. Um, we're not talking about two different Yahwehs. We're not talking about multiple gods. Uh, we're talking about one God. And then in the incarnation, you have the revelation, a, a much deeper and personal revelation of that one God in the ministry of Jesus and in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Again, the, the, play, the primary place where the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed. You see... It gets a little bit more interesting, even when you look at the New Testament. Now, we know the New Testament has different authors. There's 27 books of the New Testament. You've got Paul, who's written from 7 to 13 books, and there's dispute as to exactly how much is written. John, written many books. Who is John? We don't know who John is, by the way. We don't know who John is. But, yes, Paul had a kind of exaltation Christology. There's no doubt. He did believe that Jesus was divine. And a good example of that is the uh, second... Philippians, the hymn. But 
He believed in a kind of subordinationism. And how do we know that? Because if you look at line 9 to 11, it's quite explicit that God gives him the name. So he didn't have it before. Jesus did not have the name before, and he makes it above all names. Okay, so it's a little confusing there, uh, but he's talking about the Carmen Christi, Philippians chapter 2. And what he's not seeing um, is that the son has voluntarily um, made himself of no reputation, and he has done so by taking on a human perfect nature. So it's 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 humiliation by addition rather than subtraction. Okay, and so he has acted in tapaina safrune, humility of mind. Uh, he has done the Father's will, and upon his resurrection, he is exalted and given the name which is above every name. But that's in light of his finished work. So, to argue, well, he didn't have that before. Well, how could you have it before you do the work that is then associated with it? That doesn't make any sense. Um and then what he, he misses is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Well, so you have Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. And the quotations from Isaiah, where Yahweh says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to me. So it's being applied to Jesus. And that glorification of Jesus in light of his finished work is not of a separate deity to the denigration of the Father, but says to the glory of God the Father. So, the only way that can work is if you have one God, we're monotheists, and that one God has been manifest in such a way that we recognize the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was the Son that was incarnate, it was not the Father, it was not the Spirit. Um, and when we say Jesus is Lord, that means a whole lot more than I think our Muslim friends have the capacity of understanding in light of the fact that the Quran and its author does not understand the message of Philippians 2. And in fact, I would say that, that Muhammad Hijab knows much more about the Christian doctrine of the Trinity than the author of the Quran did. What does that mean? So, that he believes in a kind of subordinationism. Now, what is subordinationism? It's a hierarchy within the Trinity. Remember, we said, the Nicene Trinity is three co-equal, co-eternal persons of the, the Godhead. Paul didn't believe this. He believes in a hierarchy. John believed in an incarnation Christology. Well, now, uh, you know, he, he just throws that out there, uh, but he hasn't proven his point and really hasn't even attempted to, to, make, to prove his point. He's asserting some type of contradiction between the recognition of the differing roles the divine persons play in the economy of salvation uh, with the introduction of some kind of subordinationism within the Godhead itself, which he has to somehow prove that. Taking different roles um, doing different things, okay, that's fully understandable, that's within God's freedom, but to then may, mean, say that, well, and that means 
this kind of subordination. Which is interesting. There are conversations being had today within Orthodox evangelical circles um, on this very topic. And it does not seem to me uh, that the most efficient way of uh, combating any form of subordinationism is by introducing philosophical complexities that almost no one in the church will ever understand. And I would just put it this way. If you do think that certain philosophical, philosophically complex doctrines and statements of doctrine are the way to protect against subordinationism, just be honest. How would you present that in this context against a Muslim? It's one thing to say, well, we, we need to do this within Christian theology and you know, within this realm, something like that. Okay, and if you want to take this outside of that realm and present this to people like this relatively young man, um, how are you going to do that? How are you going to do that while recognizing at the same time that part of the debate is ultimate sources of authority? So what is your ultimate source of authority? And are you being consistent if you say, my ultimate source of authority is actually not sufficient to define this subject, I need to bring this other stuff in from outside? Uh, they might catch you on that. They might go, you're not being consistent. And possible, anyways. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Everyone knows the prologue, John chapter 1, yeah? <laughs> Remind me there just for a second, he, was, he says, everybody knows Remind me of, of when Biden couldn't do that one, uh, the thing, the thing. <laughs> Everybody knows the thing. <laughs> Let's hear it, the prologue. Uh, okay, there you go, the thing. But the question is this, who, who is John? His, his gospel was found some 95 AD. This is the time it was found, 95 AD. Um, found? Uh, y you mean that there are people who would date the writing? Of the gospel in 95 AD, it's not a matter of no one has found a gospel of John from 95 AD. I mean, okay, one of the papyrologists in the 1930s that examined um, P52 placed it in the 90s, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. Um, I'm not sure what he means, but he's not using accurate language by saying found. I think he's saying that the Gospel of John is the last to be written, which is highly probable, but we don't know when it was written. There are some people that believe it was written before 70 AD. It's very common to have 95 to 98 as well, but that's all speculation. There's, there's, no, there's no date uh, attached to it, uh, nor is there need to be. That's some 65 years after Jesus' disappearance. The irony of Jesus's disappearance, which uh, makes me makes me think that for a while there are all these uh, signs up on telephone poles in Jerusalem, you know, missing <laughs> picture. Yeah, uh, no, uh, he has to say it that way because they don't believe in the resurrection. 
um, Sir Sir Four One Fifty Seven keeps them from being able to stand with the majority of uh, of uh, his of history in recognizing the uh, resurrection of Christ. Oh, the ascension's right out. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, uh, we need to change that. No, the ascension's right in. Because if you read Sir 4, 157, 158, um, there is sort of an ascension there, but before the crucifixion. Because in, because in, in Muslim thinking, God, Allah would never allow one of his blessed prophets to die in an ignominious fashion. And so he took him up to himself. So there is, there is an ascension. It just skips the death, burial, and resurrection first. I'm sorry? Stolen? I'm not sure that would be the term that they would use, you know, but, um, it, well, it's disappearance. That's what he just said. Yep, there, there you go. That's, that's why he said what he said. All is that you'll find in the Gospel of John, for example, passages like John 17.3 where it explicitly mentions that the Father is the only true God. Yeah, you know, uh, we've been over it a million times before, but um, if you're a monotheist, that's all you can say. What, what can you expect them to say? You're one of many gods? You're not God? Um, but what are you going to do if you're going to be honest with the text? And I, can, and I can very honestly say, you know, when you, when you read... Uh, what every Christian needs to know about the Quran. When I deal with Quranic texts, I really do attempt to understand them within the context which they're written. Now, the Quran is hard to do that with because very often there is no context. Not even the Muslims can figure out what the context is. So that can be problematic, but there is a context, John chapter 17. And if you're going to quote John 17, 3, and then not have an answer for John 17, 5, you got a problem. Because in John 17, 5, Jesus says, Glorify me, Father, the glory which I have with you before the world was. In your presence. Jesus is speaking about having existed as a divine person in the presence of the Father in eternity past and having been glorious. Now that's after John 12 where he has quoted from John 6 and applied it to Jesus. And that, I'm going to say, Isaiah 6 and applied it to Jesus. And of course, that's the temple vision and seeing the glory of Yahweh and, and things like that. But if you're, not gonna, if, you're gonna, if you're not going to be prepared to deal with 17.5, don't just quote 17.3 as if it has some kind of meaning in and of itself. Um, that's manhandling the scriptures. It's it's not showing respect for those scriptures, um, and it generally means you don't have much of a strong argument in um, in where you're going at all. Explicitly mentions this, and this was such a thorn in the side of the church fathers that Augustine, a major church father, who died 430 A.D. and who wrote who wrote an exegesis on John. Do you know what he said? He rearranged the words of John chapter 17, verse 3. He changed the word order so as to make Jesus and the Father the true gods. 
this is how severe it was. Well, I'd like a reference. But knowing how Augustine handled things, I would assume that he is looking at more of the context of 17 and including John's testimony to Jesus' deity uh, along with that. That's my assumption of what's what's going on. Um, but it, it's not some kind of quote-unquote thorn in the side um, in light of the fact there's so much just in John chapter 7, just in that one chapter that testifies the deity of Christ that Muhammad's not dealing with. And, and I'm not sure that he's necessarily even um, fully aware of the existence of that um, that material. So we will continue with that uh, in uh, in future episodes as well. I, I know we've been doing it rather slowly, but it gives us an opportunity to hear Unitarian, in this case, Islamic Unitarian um, arguments and to be prepared to deal with them. I believe it's best to hear those arguments from the sources themselves rather than I'm just saying, well, it's common for such and such to say this or such and such to say that. It's good to hear how it's expressed by others so that when you hear it, you will be better prepared to give an answer because that's what we're called to be able to do. So speaking along those lines, uh, this morning I was directed to a uh, webcast um, that uh, was fairly recently recorded, and it's uh, a webcast in um, in the UK. And one of the they're all it's Reformed Baptists, and one of the Reformed Baptists sounds so much like Justin Brierley um, that I'm surprised Justin hasn't um, sued to have his voice changed or something because. It, it it really is amazing how much they sound alike. It it's um it's amazing. But this is the uh, Broken Wharf Coffee House sessions. Sorry, don't know anything about the guys. Um, it, it again, it's new. It's new to me. And uh, the conversation is with Steve Meister and Robert Briggs both from Emmanuel up in um, Sacramento. And the discussion is on the modern Reformed Baptist scene. And I wouldn't have commented on it except that, once again, we have um, in the comments of Pastor Briggs a... um, coalescence of a condemnation of Biblicism, once again, the boogie word of the confessionalists today. Um, can't, can't be a, you know, can't be a Biblicist. Um, together with a slanderous use of the term neo sassinian now, you can get away with doing that because the vast majority of people today don't know anything about Sassinianism, the various forms that it took. They've not read its confession of faith. Um, it was a 
major challenge in post-Reformation history. Uh, once it arose, it it um, spread rapidly. Uh, to be a Sassanian is to reject the Trinity. It is to reject the deity of Christ, uh, his preexistence. And the Socinians believed they had a, a, a perfect form of rational philosophy. That if you were to rationally interpret uh, the pages of Scripture, they didn't, ha they didn't have a perfectly orthodox bibliology either, but if you were to have this rational understanding um, of the Scriptures, then you would come to see that Jesus truly wasn't God and and uh, and things like this. And in general, the really irresponsible way in which the term is being used today, uh, as in this context, is to just simply smear the people that are actually closest to you in the theological realm. It's fascinating because in this conversation there was discussion about recovering a reformed Catholicity and being able to get along with Presbyterians and others. And yet this particular attitude results in a cancellation of the people who are the absolute closest to you in their theology. And once again, this raises all the issues that we've talked about for coming up on two years now, because it was December of um, of twenty one when uh, all this stuff started happening. Um, that when you when you when you when you think about what's being said, you have the issues of where we derive our ultimate authority from. And we're hearing about, well, we're recovering orthodoxes. If everyone has been unorthodox forever, and all these people who are, you know, it, if, if you listen to this, you're going to wonder if anyone had an IQ above 50 in the 1990s. <laughs> you, really, you really will. We didn't know what we were talking about. We didn't understand the Trinity or nothing. And when you really find out what's being talked about it's a it's a slight emphasis issue that does open up a bunch of discussion of and how do you decide this and it really does come down to um the supremacy of scripture sufficiency of scripture things like that this redefinition of biblicism into something well there's these people think you should only use the, the words of the bible and in fact i was thinking i brought this in today uh, this is the uh, most recent journal of Grace Bible Theological Seminary, Pro Pastor, and it's on the sufficiency of Scripture. I have an article here on the sufficiency of Scripture in apologetics. It's, there's all sorts of other topics addressed. But here is an entire publication where biblicists used all sorts of non-biblical language to talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. So the idea that a biblicist is someone says, you should only use the words of Scripture, is just absurd. A biblicist is a person who believes that the ultimate source of divine truth for the church 
will be found in what God has revealed to the church and given to the church in Scripture. Which means that the only value of creeds and confessions comes from their fidelity to the revelation of Scripture. Even if it uses other words, the issue is, would the apostles have recognized that you are appropriately summarizing their teaching by using this language, by using these things? And the issue is, if your confession is necessary to form the framework for your exegesis, then where did your confession get its authority from in the first place? You see? Because if you say, well, yeah, you have to have this system in place to be able to handle Scripture. Okay, where did the system come from? Well, it's our confession. Okay, where did the confession come from? Well, it's the church expressing its beliefs. Okay, where those beliefs come from? You know what this is eventually going to get to. You're, you're either going to have to say, well, it comes from Scripture, which is what we say, the norm that norms every other norm, or you're going to go where all sorts of other groups say, and you have Scripture plus. Scripture plus. Plus tradition plus this, plus that. And Biblicism, you know, I defined Reformed Biblicism on the basis of Calvin's response to Satteletto. I've had no one refute that, by the way. They just don't even want to, don't even want to go there. Um, but we recognize church history. We learn from those in church history. But we learn just as much what not to do as we learn what to do. Okay. Uh, we learn from Augustine not to be a Neoplatonist. Uh, we learn from Origen not to do almost anything at all. <laughs> um, and, but we do learn, and we do appreciate the positives. You know, I can, I can you know, sing the praises of Athanasius, obviously. Um, but I also, if I'm going to be honest as a historian... With Athanasius, I have to recognize the incredible impact that the Desert Fathers had upon him um, and the whole concept of monasticism, which is an unbiblical system. This is a conversation amongst Reformed Baptists, and all Reformed Baptists are Biblicists. Whether you, if you want to try to run and hide from that, I can't stop you from doing that, but the fact of the matter is, when it comes to the quote-unquote great tradition, you are a biblicist. Your doctrine of baptism is not the great tradition doctrine of baptism. Your doctrine of the church is not the great tradition doctrine of the church. Your doctrine of the sacraments is not the great tradition doctrine of sacraments. In each one of those instances, our fathers in the United Kingdom, because that's where Reformed Baptists came from, demanded the right to believe what the Scriptures said, even at the cost of their freedom and their lives. And now we're pretending they didn't do that? Don't get it. Don't get it at all. But, 
let's listen to a few minutes of this because I I think it's um it's important. Let's um dive in with it. Um, and so yeah, the one you've just mentioned is a good one, and we're encouraged. And we have definitely seen a, a really wonderful recovery towards a, 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 an orthodox trinitarianism. Let's just call it. Give that. us a, give so give uh, us a few of those wins that it would be useful because we the in- you know it almost sounds like up until a few years ago we were all trinitarian heretics. Um, we were not. Uh, these guys are literally, it, they're, they're literally to the point of saying, it, if you don't have, if you don't cross the T and dot the I and have a particular emphasis in inseparable operations or a particular understanding of simplicity that goes right along with Thomas Aquinas, then you're a heretic when it comes to the Trinity. And I'm, and I'm just like, I don't even, I don't even know how you get that. Um, but once again, let me just point something out as the reformed Baptist out here, actually it was traveling the world and you all support us in doing it, debating Muslims all over the place and Unitarians and Mormons and all the rest of them. Are you now saying, oh yeah, it was all wrong. Um, if you think that this new emphasis you have somehow changes all that, then why aren't you out there doing it? I'd like to see how this works. Because I've never seen it used in debate. Not once. Don't know how it would be. But I'd like to see how it works. Internet oddly amplifies certain things. Uh, so, yeah. so we only become aware of... And, and, and to us, America, depending on your, your particular favorite theological tribe, can look like a small village that's generating some ideas. So so take us down to the to the the ground level and tell us about some of those wins for encouragement and also well, warning. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I think I think every I think every group that has their confession has their diversity of, you know, those who are truly confessional and those who are pretending to be confessional and those who are aware they're not really confessional but for whatever reason think it's just important to pretend they're confessional. Um and then So now we have the accusation if you don't agree with me then you're pretending to be confessional because we get to define it now now it's something where you've got this is the orthodox confessional interpretation and then everything else is just pretense i don't remember that maybe i i suppose because there were divisions amongst reformed baptists uh back uh before i even became a reformed baptist um Maybe that was thrown around back then, but I I never heard it. Um, this seems to be a, a new thing that the pretended uh, people. Um, that's that's really helpful in maintaining unity. As those who are just you know they're not confessional at all, and uh, it becomes quite obvious. I think it depends. I mean, I think within the Reformed Baptist world, which we can talk to mostly because that's the one that we are in, um, there are probably two or three different groupings developing. Uh, there has always been the desire for greater unity and peace, but I think the recent decade uh, with the recovery and retrieval um, that has taken place... Ha- now, you need to understand, this recent decade, that's going back to, to uh, 2013, and maybe a little bit before that. That was the impassibility stuff, where Arbka let 25-30% of their churches just just go. Um, and, and that's what then led to the further quote-unquote, resourcement that has led to the current situation we're facing now. Has magnified the difference between what I would call a biblicist approach 
uh, I would add, I would go as far as calling it a neo Sassinianism. Um, mm-hmm. That would create all sorts of problems. But I, yes, Robert, it does because it's grossly unfair, untrue, historically naive, and shame on you. Absolute shame on you. You may want to associate rank heresy with biblicism for whatever your reasons would be. I'll leave that to you and to your Lord. Um, but you know better than to do this. And there are no neo sassinians amongst Reformed Baptists. There just aren't. Um, to, to use that kind... The only the only way that I could reciprocate would be to call you a neo papist. That 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 was that would be how to blow this whole thing up. It would be just as absurd, just as slanderous, just as wrong. But I don't do that. So why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? I don't. I do not understand it. And you're going to say here later on that well, you know, we may need to start naming names. Okay, if you're going to call people Sassinians, you should have been doing that all along. That's the only way to have integrity. And anyone who wants to throw that at me, I will shred the accusation historically and logically publicly because it's foolishness. I won't, and I'll, I'll name names like I am right now. But I'll do so for the reason of having peace amongst the brethren, because this is not how you create peace. You do not not name names and then throw out accusations of rank heresy and not name the names. That's not how you bring peace. That's how you bring division. Because by not saying who you're talking about, then anybody can apply it to anybody they want to apply it to. It's, it's like spreading gasoline around. What does that accomplish? Accomplishes nothing. Well, uh, other than creation of division by slander and gossip and stuff like that, which we shouldn't be doing. Shouldn't be doing. I think it is. I think it will yet prove to be that mm-hmm. if we wait another decade. Um, and those of us who have come to realize that we had some things wrong or we've had some things that were unclear and we had some things we just didn't know and we need to sort that and address that and become more robustly clear uh, on our confessional position, our historical orthodoxy. I think you're going to see, Johnny, for sure, uh, a growing division there, unless there's a real turning of heart uh, for some of those that are digging their heels in right now, it would appear to me, who want to claim a confessionalism, but who I would argue are lacking in integrity in Shouldn't that. They? they know they don't, they, they don't really affirm certain truths in the confession, it's maybe not politically politically expedient to say it publicly yet. They might even try to pretend and pivot to make it look like they do believe it. But the reality is, time time I think will show that uh, there are those of us who really are yeah. are really committed to full blown retrieval of orthodoxy, and those who are not really embracing it, and those who are pretending. And, and there's just a diverse group of okay. you know people involved. Just, just picking you know. up now. I, I mean. This is; these are not the words of someone who is attempting to maintain unity, or attempting to uh, bring two sides together, and focus upon what the real issues are. 
this this language. We're the confessional ones. We're the orthodox ones. They're the neo-Sassinians. This division is going to keep going. This sounds like someone who wants it and thinks that that's necessary, but it's going to go that way. So let me just comment. I think the division will continue. But I believe what's going to happen, to be honest with you, is that the people that are intent upon demanding a hyper, narrow, brittle interpretation of minor points that 99% of the people in the pew have no interest in and never impacts their life are going to discover that they're going to be talking to themselves in small little circles someplace. And everybody else has moved on and they've moved on with those who do what? Who teach them about God from God's word. Do not subjugate that word to an external confession. Confessions are wonderful. They tell the world what we believe, but they are subordinate to the scriptures. And the people in the pew know who's standing up there opening the word of God and letting the word of God teach and those who are opening something else and then using scripture passages to try to provide foundation or basis for the things that they're saying. I believe that the majority of the people in the pews, when they hear about this and they sit back and they listen, they're going, I don't necessarily know what all these issues are, but it seems one side is saying we stand on Scripture. And they're not saying you forget about the past. They're not saying anything like that at all. But they're saying what they've always said. So, for example, the authority of the Council of Nicaea is based upon Nicaea's fidelity to Scripture. That's where it comes from. Because one is a higher source of authority than the other. On that, you, you're calling it a, a neo-Sassinianism. And I know you're not, you're not attaching a label to probably what is a, a clear-cut movement or, or anything like that. But in terms of trying to dissect that, and um, I, I can agree, the way a lot of people seem to be going in uh, the certain way that they practice uh, their confessionalism, what would you say were the key features of that? Would you say it's neo-Sassinian in the, basically the raw biblicism, in the lack of desire to have any conformity with uh, the history of the church? What, what would be one or two of those key features? What conformity with the church are we referring to? Um, the, the particular Baptists did not conform. I, I, they were called, what again? What was another term used? Nonconformists? And they did not conform on what issues? Um, ecclesiology? Sacramentology? The ordinances of the church? And especially baptism. Meaning, subjects, objects, covenants. Um, they were nonconformists. And that was one of the main arguments that was used against them. And they were willing to go to prison for it. So that's what it means to be a particular Baptist. 
that that's the whole that's the whole point, isn't it? And so now we're going to pretend that that's not our history and go, well, okay, our forefathers said, hey, on these issues, we're standing on Scripture alone. And we know that the majority of people and the, the majority of the church, we say they're wrong. They need to be corrected by Scripture. Okay. That does not make you a Sicinian. And anybody who says that it does is just not playing with a full deck of theological cards. Well, I would certainly say this. Uh, you know, Dr. Renner has just republished Vindicae Veritatis uh, by Nehemiah Cox. And when I, I've read through the first chapter of that, I almost thought, wow, we're living through this mm -hmm. again. Uh, Thomas, Thomas Collier's approach to the Bible um, his uh, individualistic, um, crass, kind of solo scriptura approach, uh, as opposed to sola scriptura approach, and not understand the historical mm. difference, has produced has produced a, a a culture in which my exegesis and my interpretation is infallible, and you've got you can't you can't in any way judge it or disagree with it, even though it's completely out of step with the historical exegetical, uh, theological understanding of the church. Uh, I don't know anybody who claims that. Um, but that issue aside, on baptism and on ecclesiology, your exegesis of all the key baptism texts are against the exegesis of the church. Depends on how you define the church, huh? Which is why, even on ecclesiology, there is a difference. Why is it so easy to point out the inconsistencies? Well, we're not talking about those things. We're only talking about theology proper. We're talking about, we're talking about stuff that almost nobody in their Christian life ever even thinks about or makes application to. A, a particular understanding of divine simplicity and a particular understanding of inseparable operations that most people have never heard of, but that's the whole thing. We're recovering orthodoxy, <laughs> which is more important than baptism in the form of the church and stuff like that. I, I don't understand this. I do not understand it. And I don't think almost anybody else does either. And it certainly is insufficient to actually be identifying fellow Reformed Baptists as Neo-Sassinians. Now, like I said, I, I happen to notice I've obviously gone over time now. Um, let me just see if in this next section the, the other, other part I wanted to play is there, and if not, well, uh, we'll see. Uh, I have the spirit. I am able to do this. That's what I mean by a kind of Neo-Sassinian mm. approach, uh, John Mark, that we have to recognize this is a disaster because what it does it sets up individual men, like Steve said, with their individual ministries, mm. and they become this almost papal authority. Mm. They are they are the standard for exegesis and interpretation of confessional documents. And uh, those of us who would even dare to say, you know, we might have this wrong, we are the ones who are viewed then as the troublers of Israel. Um, and, and, and in many ways, what we're doing is trying to call the mm. church back to, you know, a, a, a conformity to orthodoxy and 
Um, and, and there are many examples we could cite without going into them today, but one of the major ones, quite frankly, is the, the canoticism that has pervaded a Christological understanding of, of Christ. Um, and there, there is, you know, we, could, we can send you the videos of uh, well-known people uh, making claims that, uh, you know, Christ has divested himself of any of his uh, divine, of some of his divine attributes. Um, there are certain things that he, he certainly does not know. Um, and I don't know about the rest of you, but I know what he's referring to, don't you? We all do. I'd love to see these videos. Um, brother, you just need to step out and post it. And the reason you're not doing it is because you know what I will do when you do so. You know it. That's why you're not doing it. But you post this stuff, and I'm going to put it in its context, and I'm going to demonstrate that not only is this in perfect orthodoxy with Calvin and everybody who came after him, well, okay, Calvin and those who defended the faith who came after him, but I'm also going to demonstrate that you believe that the glory that Christ had in the presence of the Father in eternity past was veiled during the Incarnation. You believe that. You have to believe that. Every Orthodox person has always believed and accepted that. That is not that does not mean that Jesus' glory ceased to exist during the Incarnation, but that to accomplish His role as Redeemer, as incarnate Son of God, He could not be walking through the streets of Jerusalem with a Shekinah glory. You don't get the interaction that was necessary in His teachings if people are falling over dead, burned by the presence of the glory of God. So we know that the incarnation involved in some fashion Jesus entering into human flesh and ministering as the Messiah and in so doing, talk about, you, you know, you guys... Well, you need to use doctrine of appropriations. You need to use this special terminology over here. And it's not it's it's not by addition, it's by subtraction, or it's not by subtraction, it's by addition, and it's and we don't want to use uh, veiling, we want to use a, you know a synonym over here. And, and it's just like, how about focusing upon explaining what the word of God says to the people of God? Instead of all this philosophical mumbo jumbo. How about doing that? That's the way to do it. So, I am publicly challenging Robert Briggs and Steve Meister. Post it. Post it. Put the names. Put the videos. Stop with this backhanded slander. Put it out there and prepare to defend it. And if you really want to push this, if you really want to go this direction... I'm still making reservations and organizations for the trips in the summer and the fall. Debate me. Formal debate. How about in um, up in Nevada? 
Not far for you to go. I've got friends in the Reno area. Um, how about it? You have a challenge right now. Put it out there. Or stop with it. Just step back and go, we are going the wrong way. This is not going to end well. The only way is to shine light on this. Only way to do it. So, what about it? Because I didn't get to that point, but he, he later point says, we may have to name names. Yes, you do. Now. Now. Put it out there. Stop with this stuff. Post the videos. Give the references. Let's go. And I think a lot of people are going to go, well, wait a minute. Those aren't... That's just... Those are minor issues. Yeah! It just it does seem to me that Reformed Baptists have a absolute intent to destroy themselves over minor issues. And if you don't mind... I'm not interested in going there. Um, my church is interested in reaching out to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims and Roman Catholics and fighting abortion and doing everything we can at this time in this way. And this kind of picayune stuff is not going to stop us from doing it. Not going to stop us from doing it. All there is to it. All right. Anyway, didn't think I'd go that long, but. There you go. Should have known that I would. Once start once start playing audio, you just have to realize that the time is going to go much much faster than you thought it was going to go, and that's how it works. But you know the neat fight, the neat thing now is I can sit here and make Rich wonder when I'm actually going to stop talking, as to when he's going to start the music. But when I do this, when I have this little A10 Mini Pro running in the van, I have to figure all that for myself. It's much more complicated. This is much easier. And make put the weight on somebody else. And you know, I'm really surprised, Rich, you didn't turn on your light or do your Rich Cam today. I mean, after all that, you you haven't been able to comment for two and a half weeks on the dividing line. Okay, all right. I just thought for sure you you did make one comment. So. Oh, you're going to blame Algo for that, too? Okay, all right. So you, you, all right, all right. Okay, I get it. I get it. All right. Anyway, okay, kids. Um, this Saturday, I'm going to see the Messiah with the granddaughters. Looking forward to seeing that. If you have not listened to the Messiah yet this Christmas season, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you're wasting the whole time. Get a chance to listen to it. We will be back, Lord willing, next week. We'll see you then. God bless.